The need for child care is a growing challenge pretty much across the nation. It's even more urgent for armed services members who need the care during odd hours or at short notice. The National Guard is trying to meet that need with a new program that will help parents on the weekends. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni joins me with the latest. Scott, tell us about this program. What are they aiming at and how will it work? Well, first of all, for those who aren't familiar with the National Guard, National Guardsmen need to go to training every once a month for a weekend and really spend this time drilling so that they are up to date on all the training that they need to know and you know become good service members for whenever they're deployed or if they are deployed. So during that time, as you can imagine, not exactly the best time to leave your children behind or you know there's not the child care centers that you'd expect to be open. So this program is aimed at those parents. The program will start in September in six states, Massachusetts, New Mexico, New Hampshire, Washington State, Virginia, and Ohio. And this care is going to be free to service members from uh, who have children from six weeks to 12 years of age. Now, there is one caveat to that. You have to prove that you don't have anyone at home or any other care that you have for, for this situation. So this is for people who can't find the care that they need. After you get that approval, the National Guard says it will pay for 12 hours of child care per day of drilling. So you have basically 24 hours in a weekend that you can have your child taken care of. So uh, this is something that they're hoping will increase retention. They're hoping will uh, be an incentive for recruitment and also just really help the service members do their jobs and be better service members for the future. And just a quick detail question, when they do have a weekend for training, is it something that you come home to in the evenings or are they camping out somewhere for the entire 48 hours? Well, it all depends on, on what you do. You know, if you're a cyber person, you may be able to go into Fort Meade and come back out 12 hours later and, and do your thing. On the other hand, if you're an infantry, they may have you out in the fields for those full two days. So it really depends on your occupation within the military and your rank and all those sorts of different variables. What percentage of National Guard members have children? Do they know that? They do, and it's actually pretty high. Now, we're talking with the Army National Guard here. Currently, 35% or 118,000 service members have children, and then 9% of that section of people who are parents are single parents, which accounts for about 36,000 children between that newborn and 12 years old range. So, you know, these are a lot of people that, that need the help that we're talking about, especially these single parents, they're the ones that are struggling the most. They don't have the ones that the spouses at home who can bring someone or who can take care of their children as they drill or, you know, something like that. And how is it all organized? How do they coordinate the caregivers with the parents and who oversees it and so on? So the National Guard's pairing with an organization called Child Care Aware of America. It's a not-for-profit organization that's focused on affordable child care for really anyone in the nation, and they help find available providers. They have paired up with the Defense Department in the past, and they're quite large. They have a very large network within the United States for these sorts of things. So the National Guard is pairing up with this. It has a contract with the organization. They will then provide the care and the setup of providers for these service members so that they can they can do this. And one of the things I wanted to also mention is that while the program starts on September 1st, the child care won't be available until November. So soldiers can start applying to this program on September 1st. They'll then be able to reserve the child care for November starting on October 2nd. And if this program is successful enough, they're planning on taking it nationwide 
by July 2023. And the local providers then are coordinated to this nonprofit organization, Child Care Aware. Is there a licensing requirement or some kind of standards overseer so that they can be sure that the child care is good, efficacious, and safe? Right. Well, this is something that they didn't really necessarily address in the memo, but you know, they can either go to on-base child care if there is that available or then there's also the off-base child care, which they'll be reimbursed for. And, you know, the Defense Department is the largest employer-sponsored child care program in the United States. They serve approximately 200,000 children of uniformed service members and DOD civilians, and they employ about 23,000 child care workers. It costs over a billion dollars a year, and um, there's still a shortage, though, within there. The Navy reported 9,000 families on waiting lists in 2019. The Army reported 5,000 children on its wait lists, and then smaller in the Air Force and Marine Corps at 3,200 and 800 children, respectively. So, you know, this isn't necessarily a guarantee that you're going to be getting the child care if you're in a very tight area. The Defense Department and the nation as a whole are still needing child care providers. And one of the things that is really prohibitive for the Defense Department is that if you have a child care provider on base, then you need to ensure that they have all the security clearance and background checks that they need to get on that base, something that's been very slow, as you know, and has had quite a backlog over the years. So this is something that's slowing down the Defense Department in terms of the child care they're trying to provide. And we have been talking about the National Guard. What about the regular armed services or other elements Related to the military, any other programs of this type going on? You mentioned that some elements of DOD already use a similar program. Right. And this is also another program. The Defense Department has a larger program called Military Child Care in Your Neighborhood Plus. This is also with that Child Care Aware of America program. And this program, this this In Your Neighborhood program, is also a pilot and it's an attempt to ease some of the child care burden by providing fee assistance to military families to find private child care providers. So if you aren't able to bring your child on base or your, your CDC on base really just doesn't have enough room for your child, they will pay for you or at least part of your fee to go and find someone maybe in actually in your neighborhood, as the title implies, or you know near your neighborhood. Um, So, you know, many of those YMCA programs or anything else like that. So the Pentagon is expanding the program to southern Florida, Texas and Colorado by November in hopes of trying to ease this burden that we were just talking about on the base child care providers. And that idea of having weekend coverage, that's really not quite unique to the military, but it's something that the military needs probably to a greater extent than average parents outside of the military. Absolutely. I mean, you know, many people are the average nine to five compared to the service members. And there's also many after school programs that parents are put into, put their children into. You know, these are small, short term child care that are open much more often and much more available to civilians compared to weekend care. So, you know, this is something that can be extremely beneficial if they can get it going and if they can help these parents out at the time that they need it. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni, thanks so much. Thank you. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, 
to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. 
And that's something I started out with as a gift, right? That kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that. And then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage 
young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.